Welcome to The Great Conversation, where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets. Ideas can change the world. Many of you know that in my younger days, I traveled the world. Uh, wanted to be the next Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, just like I wanted to be a great baseball star. Both of those didn't happen. But the experiences were invaluable to my later life, both personally and professionally traveling through Afghanistan and India and Pakistan, uh, parts of the world that changed forever. And so I'm always just um, totally fascinated with people who have had similar journeys as me, ran into a gentleman who at 15 became a boy soldier. And his uh, special story of going through many different uh, versions of the military, if you will, and the experiences he had uh, also fed um, a very interesting DNA, and that DNA is around um, resilience in character, leadership in action, uh, the history and how that how our past is a prologue to our future. Uh, he is a man who's sensitive around human rights, and he's been a fairly prolific author, unlike me. Uh, who's actually published a number of books, and the most recent one will be the subject of today's great conversation when we get around to it. I want you all to meet Robin Horsfall. Robin, it's great having you coming in from Wales in the United Kingdom. No, it's great to be here, Ron. Um, the we're a long, long way apart, about 7,000 miles, I think, so, uh, so it's great to be here. Yeah, Robin and I both... Uh, firmly believe that the internet is dictated by mileage and that's why we have these hiccups all the time but of course we both are later generation most of the newer generation wouldn't describe it that way no no um i was um i was born in 1957 the beginning of the space age the year that sputnik went round the earth for the first time <laughs> that's that's right that's right i was uh two years before that 1955 uh, I think Disneyland started back then. <laughs> yep, yep. And, yeah. And, 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 and we've both through, uh, been through some amazing changes uh, in our society because of the tools we've created and also the kind of events that have colored our lives, like the moonshot, for example, and, uh, and the whole idea of uh, the internet. Um, uh, Robin, let's... Let's do a little background, though, because I'm, I'm going to ask you a question that I actually don't know. I just implied in the opening here, and that is you went through some tremendous experiences in the um, in the military, in the British Special Forces. Um, I'd love to hear how you think that's coloring how you see the world today. Well, um, I had a very... A uh, difficult childhood, shall we say. Uh, my mother was single. My father was in prison. And um, so I didn't have a father until I was seven. My mother married a man who adopted me and gave me his name, Jeffrey Horsfall. And after seven years, their marriage fell to pieces. And um, so at the age of 14, I was at um, a grammar school, which is a high-level school in the UK. And um, But I was failing. And I was failing because of very much because of my home situation. And I didn't like the idea of failing, uh, but I resented also all, all forms of authority. 
Um, but I walked into a military um, recruitment office and uh, tried to join the army at 14. And the school leaving age in 1972 was 15. Um, so they said, look, you're too young, but you can fill in this paperwork, come back, do some tests, come back next year. And, um, you know, you can join the British Army. So at the age of 15 and a half, I was a full-time member of the British Army in what was called junior service. So you did two two years and three months. And uh, then you joined your adult unit at the age of 17 and a half to 18. And um, those years were so important. They were so formative. They built the strong foundations for the future. I think for without them, um, I was on the slippery slope to disaster. Um, so it was a, in, in some ways a form of um, non-graduate military college. And, um, and most of my colleagues, most of my friends from that time actually benefited uh, greatly from that experience. So it took young men with no qualifications at all, but potential and gave them opportunity. And the world is full of young men today who have that same potential but don't have that same opportunity and it's a wasted resource resource because there are so many organizations and corporations and governments that say unless you've been through this academic process and proved that you can write essays and get these qualifications on paper then you're doomed to be a second-class citizen for the rest of your life so i had that opportunity uh, at 18 i was a paratrooper um, at 21, I was a special forces soldier. At 27, I was um, uh, a, an international bodyguard and a, a mercenary. And um, I ended up as a major in the in the FARC forces uh, of Frelimo in Mozambique for 15 months of a war there. I did lots and lots of different operations. One, the famous one in London in 1980, when we rescued 19 hostages from the Iranian embassy. Um, I did five tours of Northern Ireland as a soldier on the streets and two as a, a special forces soldier. And um, I took part in the Falklands War. So, um, and that was just the beginning. Um, so, you know, there's, um, I did all that by the time I was 32 and I'm 66 now. So my military foundations were 12 years in the British Army. And, um but they were they were the solid structures that everything else grew from, without a doubt. Well, it's so funny because um, when I saw the title of one of your books, which is your autobiography called "Fighting Scared," I did want to ask you about that um, because <laughs> it just uh, it piqued my interest from the standpoint of here's here's a warrior who started at fifteen. And he writes an autobiography choosing that title. Tell me about that. Um, the title, I was um, my, my editor, my main editor before the company, before Wendell Nicholson got it, was um, my wife. And I, I started to write the book and I got the first few chapters out of the way and uh, she read them. And she said, this is, uh, I won't use the word, but she said it wasn't good. <laughs> um, and... Um, and she said, where's the color? Where's the emotion? Where's the life? What you've done is written a military report here, and it's just facts, um, what happened next. And um, and so she inspired me to start to put the book together and start to have, you know, what was your mother doing the day you left? Was the sun shining through the window? How did you feel when you hugged her before you left home? Um, all those all those, all those parts. So it's a quite, it became quite a cathartic experience 
um, revealing those emotions. And she's always been absolutely wonderful at doing that. And the book, the book shaped from there. But then we had to find a title. And um, she said, well, you know, what's the book really about? I said, well, there's a lot of fighting in it. And she said, yeah. And she said, but why were you fighting so much? And I said, well, when I was 19, two drunks came into the room one night and almost beat me to death. Um, they, um, they, they got me in my bed and they battered me for over 20 minutes, broke my jaw, dislocated my jaw, broke my ribs, my fingers, attacked me with a razor and nearly killed me. And, um, and after that, I became quite, um, quite uh, unstable and violent. Fortunately, I was in a violent world um, which could cope with that. Um, and I was always fighting after that. And it was because I was so scared of getting hurt like that again. So we came up with the title Fighting Scared, or she did very much more than me. And it fits very well with the book. Um, and so it's it's not just a gas and basham and smashing book. It's a personal development story about this young 15-year-old boy who wants to uh, find a place in the world. And uh, I actually tried to join the Royal Army Medical Corps and ended up in the parachute regiment, which is strange. Um, but um, and 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 how that that story moves forward. And um, she was a very very formative part of it because at 21, um, I was that lone wolf, that um, man who was a dedicated soldier. My mother had died of cancer by then at the age of 37, so the army was my home, and. Um, I was the guy that stayed in barracks when uh, guys went home at Christmas because I didn't have a home to go to until I met her when I was on special air service selection when I was 21 years old. And uh, we've been together 45 years now and we're great grandparents six times. So we're, we're quite prolific as well. <laughs> well, you know, first of all, congratulations on your marriage and more importantly, congratulations on the life partner who informs and infuses your creativity in your life. Um, this, this context though, Robin, I want everyone to hear this context uh, because in it, um, in your profile, um, we have learned how it gave you a lesson in psychological res re resilience for yourself and others around leadership. Um, and you bring all those tools to bear in uh, the context of today's times. Uh, and we are, this world is in a volatile, uncertain, challenging world right now. And, uh, and you wrote a book recently. And in the book is actually a compendium of what I call reporting from the field on Ukraine. You call it Slava Ukraini or glory to Ukraine. And the context of that, um, of all your background feeding into this to try to give us a feeling, a feeling, an emotive feeling, like your wife said, an emotive feeling of what's really going on here and its uh, contextual relationship with the, all the other events in the world. Tell us about Slava Ukraini. Yeah, um, the full title is Slava Ukraini Who Dares Shares because Who Dare Shares is my cutoff line at the end of most of my blogs. Mm. And um, it's taken from Who Dares Wins, which is the motto of the Special Air Service. So Who Dares Shares works really, really well in social media. Um, I started um, writing uh, because um, and putting up warnings 
in in early 2022 because it was clear to me that with 100,000 Russian troops massing on the Belarus border, that they had every every intention of crossing it and invading. And um, the British press were talking about uh, Boris Johnson's uh, Christmas party. The Australians were talking about uh, sending Djokovic back because he'd breached the COVID rules. And America was talking about their um, favourite um, favorite president, number 45. And um, consequently, this was just seemed to me to be getting ignored. So I started throwing up warnings about it on social media. And I had very, very small audience um, of, a, of a few thousand. And uh, then, of course, not not much, not about maybe a week or two afterwards, over they came with their with their um, with their invasion and their uh, assault towards Kiev. And um, so then I was um, even more frustrated and more angry. So I started banging the table on social media and very quickly got this um, huge following of readership readers on um, on LinkedIn where sometimes I had a million and a half people reading my posts every week. And um, then people started to say to me, look, you know, if you put this together, you know, you've got a, an observational diary here. And so I said, well, let's see where the war goes. You know, if there's a conclusion, then um, we can, you know, we, like I could think about that. But the, I, that, that prompting gave me the motivation to carry on. So I started to bring the, bring the stuff together. And um, I don't have a, a sense that the war is going to come to an end soon unless something un unexpected happens. And as a result, I thought after 18 months, it's time to put this together and publish it. Um, so um, only two weeks ago, was it a week ago? Um, on the 6th, I, uh, I published it on Amazon and on, I published it on my web page as well. And uh, it's had a very, very successful start. Um, it's 100,000 words. It's uh, emotive. It's opinionated. Um, but I don't dance around the lie. And I accuse governments and I accuse uh, national media resources of dancing around the lie. Everybody knows what the tr truth is, but nobody is. They're frightened of getting cancelled, shut down, closed by people. Yeah. So... Um, I realized that people were dancing around the line. So everybody knows what the truth is, but because they're frightened of being canceled, closed down by their editors, not having their um, their writing produced or put out in, a, in the public domain or not being allowed to be on television, then they, they get canceled. So they dance around the line. They pretend they don't know who blew up the pipeline. They pretend they don't know who's responsible for something because they might get sued. Um, so although I have to couch my language very, very carefully not to fall into the same traps, um, I do. I refuse to dance around the lie. I'll boldly stand up and say, I think Vladimir Putin did this. I think we didn't do this because. And, um, and I've maintained that over the last 18 months with a very positive and biased view that, you know, Ukraine are in the right. They're the good guys. And in spite of the fact that like every nation, they've got problems that they have to deal with. Their country was invaded by an aggressor without provocation, and they have every right to defend themselves, and we should support them. Because they're not only fighting for Ukraine, they're fighting for Western democracy and the ideologies that we value and live by. So glory to, glory to Ukraine. Ideology is a powerful thing.
uh, ideology can be described as political. Uh, ideology can be described as theological. Um, ideology is a powerful, powerful emotion. And um, with it uh, comes um, the possibility for irrational conduct. Um, uh, ego comes into play. Hubris comes into play. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you say dancing around the lie, or lies, we should say, lies, mm -hmm. again, as a student of history, one of the first things that was that I was attuned into is the, and it's playing it out, playing out also in this recent Israeli Hamas conflict, is uh, back in World War II, where the world attempted to first ignore the threat of Hitler's Germany, which was evoking the emotions and resentment of the German nation after their fall in World War I and the depredation of their economy and their way of life. Um, and, that, um, and that led to uh, the election of a strongman who could take it back, take back their dignity, take back their way of life. And um, oddly enough, I saw a lot of that building up to the Ukraine conflict. Um, am I making sense to you? Does that uh, appear to have similarities to to world uh, uh, the post-World War II syndrome? I think I think so. I think you. Um, I've I just recently started reading the Madness of Crowds by Douglas Murray, and mm. um, um, I do like to listen to Jordan B. Peterson as well, who are extraordinary, intelligent, and well thought out people. And um, I recommend anybody to listen to them. Um, but this uh, behaviour of people when they're when they're controlled by fear, you get um, masses in the population who are controlled by people working on their base instincts you know they're going to come to our country they're going to steal our jobs um they're stealing our culture they're taking away our women you know whatever it is um they they get you to be frightened of something um one of uh, the propaganda systems invented by joseph goebbels and um it works it works really really well and we can see it working in our politics all the time now so you don't have to get um the academic, intelligent, reasonable, thought-out um, people who are good at debate and argument and introspection uh, voting for you. All you've got to do is get the people with a short attention span who are far too busy to uh, to go further than the headline and tell them that you're going to save the world and uh, you're their only hope and uh, they're all going to come across the border and kill you if you don't do something about it and vote for them now. And that's unfortunately... Um, seems to be the modern trend in 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 democracies and that's that's a bigger danger than the russians a bigger danger than the chinese and we're all experiencing it in western democracies at the moment um we don't have enough people in our society anymore especially in government who are prepared to take the time to sit down and think about what they're saying and what they're believing and check it out and get clever clever people in the government rather people than just be, you know, sometimes people who aren't that well qualified, who just want to be professional politicians and have just been elected and have no idea what the hell they're talking about. Yeah, the uh, 
it's really interesting this this impulse of human nature um uh we like to call it pragmatism at times or practical or utilitarian uh, but this idea of um let's just let's just uh let's just take care of business um and not thinking of the long game and uh not paying attention to uh, the past, the history, which is prologue to the future. So we, I, I, I love that. I love that statement, Robin. Fear, um, I always said fear is the original sin of mankind. That is uh, all the things you said. Fear leads to all this behavior that ends up being very destructive in one's personal life, professional life, and of course the world. And, and, and yet, dancing around the lie in Ukraine right now. In Ukraine right now, Ukraine was not a perfect country, just like the United no. States has been on this uh, quest for, you know, hundreds of years uh, called uh, democracy. I mean, the idea of a representative democracy was was an experiment uh, back in the day. And uh, and and many philosophers came over from Europe to observe the experiment, thinking it had to fail because it depended on the common man, not a king, not a queen, not an autocrat, but the representation of the common man in their government and in their way of life. Uh, but as John Adams said, it would require some checks and balances, and it would uh, require an educated citizenry, or it would fall apart. And uh, and what I it was so interesting because I was vacationing uh, a number of years back, and an Australian was uh, in the pool with his family, an elder guy like me. And he comes up to me and goes, "You're American." And I go, "Yes, I am." He goes, "Let me ask you something. What do you think is the greatest threat to the world right now?" <laughs> right out of the blue and then I, and I, I, I kind of smiled and I go it's got to be a trick question you must have something in mind but I'll I'm going to throw a curveball at you I think the greatest threat for me as an American looking at the world is none of the governments uh, none, none of the people in the world now believe uh, that a great conversation using my my tagline here that a great conversation otherwise known as representative democracy works. It's too slow. It doesn't take advantage of technology because of our privacy and compliance and regulatory conditions around technology uh, acceptance. It is too slow. And Putin's moving fast. China's moving fast. The autocrats of the world are going to win because at the end of the day, they can make things happen. And so we start getting attracted to strong men and women who can ignore the checks and balances of our representative democracy and just do whatever the hell they want and get it done. Am I, and the Australian looked at me, he goes, I think you got something there. What do you think, Robin, as you look at the world? I think, I think history proves that not to be the case. Um, once the democracies have come together and agreed that, you know, they're fighting a great evil, it's um, it takes a while for that steamroller, that big engine to get turned over. But once it does turn over, it has the money, it has the focus, it has the population. And um, 
you also have the population behind what you're fighting for, the belief. And, um, and people will sacrifice their lives for the greater good. And that's one of the most amazing things about human beings, when they, they believe wholeheartedly in um, what they're fighting for, they will lay down their lives for that, for that, uh, for that belief. And that's quite incredible. I don't think you find people laying down their lives for an autocracy. They they lay down their lives for freedom, for um, the rule of law, for a law-based society, uh, for their wives and children to live in, in relative safety in comparison and outside of slavery. And they'll do that. And it's some, that's, that's one of the most valuable parts of our system. I mean, the American Constitution was written by the most amazingly clever an educated group of Englishmen, <laughs> but it's true. And um, they were also Freemasons and uh, they had a great deal of integrity. And what they came up with was so far ahead of its time. And it's incredible. And one of the things that saved America in the last three years from autocracy, from dictatorship, is that constitution and the fact that your military take um, an oath to uphold the constitution not the government not the leadership but the constitution and that's um, that's a great strength and um, it's to be admired and that's why um, america keeps rolling forwards in spite of all the problems that it comes across um i think uh, it was churchill that said something along the lines and i paraphrase um america can be relied on to get it right after what is it after 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 going through all the other alternatives? <laughs> you know, and, and uh, Tocqueville, a Frenchman in the 1800s who came over to review the experiment, uh, said uh, many of the same things. So what I love about what you just did is I tried to highlight people's question mark. Does it still work? And and then you brought up Pass's prologue, a boy soldier in the fight. Um, looking back and saying, you know, we may have those fears. We may have those sentiments. We even may make the mistake, if you will, of electing people who uh, don't remember uh, the Constitution and what it and the formation of this republic. Uh, but once once the pressure is on, once the world balance has been shaken, whether it's 9-11, Nazi Germany, or in this case, uh, the genocidal uh, views of a Russian president. History says we'll come together around that idea and we'll get it right and we'll collaborate and defeat the enemy. And I thank you so much for that reminder, Robin. Nothing combines people like a common foe. When we had the Cold War, we had the Soviet Union as the common foe, and it bonded NATO together very strongly. At the end of the Soviet Union, uh, NATO got fat and flabby and lazy and cheap. And um, as soon as you get soft, somebody's going to start pushing. And Putin saw that when he went into Crimea and got away with it, went into Georgia and got away with it. And... and um, and then he went into Ukraine and expected to have exactly the same result. And um, initially, it was the courage of the Ukrainian people that prevented him having it all his own way. But that stand by the little man um, actually 
inspired Europe. It inspired NATO. It inspired the free world to stand up and say, yes, enough is enough. And um, and we're going to support this this uh, courageous nation and, um, you know, and, and, and stand behind them. And I'm I'm going to spend most of my time over the next over the coming year writing to encourage and remind people to do exactly that. Who dares shares, who <laughs> dares to look at the world for what it is, to examine the history of how it got there and who challenges each and one of us uh, to play their role in uh, the world's future. Uh, Robin, this has just been a great conversation. I urge everyone out there uh, to look up uh, Robin's uh, website. We'll put a link in the blog and uh, and also get his book, Slava Yakreni. And uh, Robin, thanks again for a great conversation. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for giving me a good listening to.